Good morning, Bethel. Well, if you uh, haven't been with us recently, um, we're in the midst of a series on the local church called Faith in the Local Church. I think um, we're going to have some of the, the bullet points from the, um, the outline in your bulletin. If it's helpful, they should be up here this morning, thanks to Chad Stellabot. So we're in the midst of this series um, called Faith in the Local Church, and as I've mentioned in previous weeks, there's an intentional double meaning um, in that title. So first of all, do you have faith in the local church? Do you believe in her? Okay, there's plenty of people that have had a bad experience, get burned, and say, I, you know, forget that. So do you have convictions about the local church, what she is, why she's important, why she's precious? Um, do you know how important she is to God? How important she is in God's plan? And then the question is, how important is she in yours, in your life, your plan? Um, and then secondly, kind of flowing out from that, is what does it look like when that faith is worked out in and for the local church? So the first week we looked at um, how the church is the body of Christ. We are like members of a body, like finger, knee, foot, that kind of thing. Um, so not just units of membership at Costco, but actually organic members, body parts. Okay, so believing what God says about the church as his body, we should then exercise that faith by one, submitting to the head. He's the head of the body. So we also then realize that if we believe this, we're members of one another. We can't say to other members of the body, I don't have any need of you. And so there's implications. We should work that faith out as we relate to one another. Okay. Secondly, we looked at how the church is the family of God. Um, and so do we really believe that God is our Father, that we are brothers and sisters? And are we living out that faith in this relational way in this local church with one another? Um, is our faith getting fleshed out? So just an example of how this works. Let's say things aren't going well in your biological family. Okay, let's say your teenager, and again, if you don't have a teenager, you can imagine this scenario, is a little sick of the family. Okay? Well, the reason why you, as a parent, don't jump ship and say, forget it, I've had enough of this family thing, it's not worth it. The reason you don't say that is because you believe in, you have convictions about the importance of the family, right? Well, maybe the teenager doesn't have much in the way of belief in or convictions about the importance of the family because at that stage of life, friends are just everything. So sometimes you preach to them, you know, about the importance of the family, right? And then what happens? At some point they get burned by a friend, quote-unquote, and you're there. And you show them lovingly, and you probably say it. I mean, when you were a teenager, did you hear this? Dare I say it? Friends will come and go, you know, but family's forever. Always there for you, okay? Well, you see the parallels? So we, we dare not just kind of practice the habit of going to church 
being a part of the church, we, we don't just go through the motions. That's not the point. We need to really see why the church is so important so that our practice is driven by these convictions. Okay? We need to embrace and live out those convictions through thick and thin, in joy and in sorrow, okay? like we talked about last week because we considered how the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus took the ultimate vows and he loves us you know, through everything, and then we covenant together as the church to love each other well. So again, do we believe that? And that will work itself out. That bride and bridegroom metaphor it will work itself out as we pursue the purity of the church, the fidelity of the church to Jesus as we await the consummation of history. So do you have convictions about the nature and priority of the church I hope so. I hope they're growing as we walk through this series. Um, do you know who and what she is? What she's for? What are we for? What's this all for? And do you believe that you have a role in, you know, to play in getting her there, getting us there? We all need to own this, okay? So this morning, um, fourth week here, we're going to look at the church as the temple, of God. Okay, we are God's dwelling place because again, this is one of the main another one of the main metaphors that the Bible used to describe the nature of the church. So one of the clearest places to see this is in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you don't have a Bible with you, um, that's okay. Just grab one in the pew in front of you and you can find our text for this morning in 1 Peter 2 on page 10:14. So I'll read verses 4 to 10, and then pray briefly, and then we'll dive in to our study. First Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. As you come to him. Jesus, the Lord, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, chosen, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do 
echo again that prayer that we've just sung, that you would speak, O Lord, and build up your church. I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. I pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to see wonderful things, wonderful, marvelous things about your excellencies and your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your love and your faithfulness. Lord, we need you to incline our hearts to listen well to your word. Lord, drive away the distractions and help us to focus. Help us to listen knowing that this is your word that you are speaking by your spirit. I pray that you would help me to speak faithfully and unpack your word carefully and truly. Lord, guard me from error, from leading these people astray in any way. Uh, Lord, we pray that your word would, would speak and that your word would change us. We know that your word is powerful. And we want to be changed. If we don't, I pray that you would awaken that desire, that we would not be dull and apathetic in relation to you and your word, but that we would be humble and hungry and ready to receive what you have to feed us this morning. I pray that we would taste and see that you are good, that you would put us out of taste for the things that compete with you in our affections. And I pray that you would not only drive those things away and cause them to lose their savor, but that you would just feed us on the sweetness of your mercy and your grace. Would you please train our taste buds and please give us a rich feast by your spirit, by your word this morning. Please do it, Lord, for the glory of your name and the good of your church as you build her up to be this temple, this dwelling place that you want her to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, like I said, there's a, an outline in the bulletin, and I think also the points will be up on the screen um, behind me. So the first point is the living stone, chosen and honored. So look at verse 4. Everything starts with Jesus, like it, like it ought to. So as you come to him, Peter writing to these, these believers, um, he says, as you come to him, a living stone, the hymn is unpacked here, obviously it's Jesus, he's the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, we're going to actually stop there for a second. So the dwelling place, if we're talking about the church as the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of God begins for us with Jesus, the living stone. Why do you think Jesus is called the living stone here in, at the beginning of, of this section here? Just think about it. Just because he's alive? Well, sort of. Why is Jesus alive? Because of the resurrection, right? Because he was raised from the dead. So the resurrection is at the heart 
of the Christian faith. It should be at the heart of the formation of the church. So flip back in 1 Peter to chapter 1. Look at how he starts out this book. He just overflows, Peter overflows with blessing and praise to God because of what he's done. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So while Jesus was on earth, his first coming, he was rejected by men. Okay, this living stone that was rejected by men, that was, that's pretty obvious. He was delivered up. He was crucified, died on the cross in our place for our sins. But even though the religious leaders rejected him, so many people cried out for his crucifixion. Even though they rejected him, in the sight of God, all along, he was his beloved son. Remember at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son, the one in whom God was well pleased. Okay, so he was chosen and precious. He was, this, this term for precious, you could translate it as honored or highly regarded. Okay, look down at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... Um, alluding back to Isaiah 28, 16. You can look it up later if you'd like. Um, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, God speaking, a, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. See that? The same way Jesus was referred to um, a couple verses before. And whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, those who don't trust Jesus, who reject him just like those religious leaders rejected him, his own people rejected him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So rather than becoming part of God's building and rejecting the cornerstone and not believing in Christ, he becomes to them, those who reject him. Verse 8, another quote from the Old Testament, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay? So just note for a second what this text is saying about Jesus. Okay? He's not just a stone. He is the cornerstone set by God. Okay? The cornerstone in a building, you know, in those customs back then, building customs, incredibly important because it basically set things for the rest of the building. Everything took its cue from that cornerstone. Okay? Every, it determined the, the, the rest of the building, the shape of the rest of the building. Okay? So it's a, an apt metaphor to use in relation to Christ, the cornerstone of the church, of the building that is the temple of God, the, his, his dwelling place. So Jesus is everything. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's everything to the rest of the building. And so he must be everything to us here at Bethel. He is, to to look back a little bit in the series on previous weeks, he's the head of the body. How, How important is a head to a body? 
the source of our life, the authority that we must submit to. Okay? He's the son in the family metaphor who reconciled us to the Father. And he's also our older brother and our friend. And then last week, he's the perfect divine husband to whom we are betrothed and who deserves our utmost respect and love and fidelity. So there's just no church without Jesus. So there should be no church without Jesus. Okay? He is the one who created it, and he should be always at the center of it. Okay? If anything is going to be at the center for us, it's got to be Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything is built on that foundation. He is everything to us. He should be everything to us. Is he everything to us? Is he everything to you? Okay? If he's everything to us, we will come to him, like it says in verse 4, over and over and over and over and over again. Come to the cornerstone, church. That's what Peter is saying. Come to the cornerstone. It all began with Jesus, and we grow and are built up by continuing to come to Jesus. Okay, which leads us right into point number two. The living stones chosen and honored. So Jesus is the living stone chosen and honored. We are the living stones chosen and honored. Look at verses four and five again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the living stone, cornerstone of God's temple, his dwelling place. We are called living stones here. Well, we were spiritually dead. In our sins. We're cut off from the life of God because of our sin. So if you're a Christian, you were made alive together with Christ. Look back again at 1 Peter 1.3. We looked at it a few minutes ago. Let's look at it again here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has, you see it there, caused us to be born again. We were dead. And he caused us by his great mercy to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So by God's great mercy, he caused us to come alive. I love that language. He caused it. Okay? You didn't cause yourself to be born the first time, right? And you didn't cause yourself to be reborn Spiritually, you were dead. So, if his grace is that great, if his mercy is that great, blessed be the God and Father. I can't take any credit for it. I want to praise him for his great mercy. You see how that follows? He caused us to be born again. If you are a Christian, that's what happened. All glory goes to God. So it happened because you are chosen. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. He caused you to be born again. You came to Christ because you are chosen. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just as Jesus was chosen and precious or chosen and honored, you and I, if we're in Christ, if we're Christians, we are members of a chosen race. Peter starts out by talking about the elect exiles. Okay, God's chosen people Okay, we're not home yet. We're still kind of strangers because this isn't home. We can't wait for him to make all things new. New heavens, new earth, new creation. So we're exiles until then, but we're loved and we're chosen and we're his. While we wait, while we're kind of unsettled and we feel like strangers at times, we're still his. So it's a beautiful phrase, elect exiles there at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? But if you are in Christ, you're a member of a chosen race. This doesn't lead to some kind of prideful elitism because it's all by mercy, right? The point is we're a new people. We're a new humanity. So what brings us together is not, you know, some sort of, you know, hobby interest. We are all together, one family, one people, because of Jesus. And the beauty is Jesus redeems people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So there's this beautiful unity with beautiful diversity, this new people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Also, look at the language here. We are a royal priesthood. (laughs) That's a crazy combination there. A kingdom of priests also is the way the Bible describes. But how about that for honor? So Jesus was chosen and honored. We are chosen and honored. Like for us to know our sinful hearts, to know how we were dead and rebels to God, and he, he rescued us. He called us out of darkness. We love to hide. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we're chosen and honored. We're called a chosen race, a royal priesthood crazy. This language of royal priesthood actually echoes something from the Old Testament. Flip back to Exodus chapter 19. Page 60 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. Exodus 19. Obviously this is after the Exodus. God redeemed his people out of Egypt They're his people, right? Look at verse 4, Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so that's where that language comes from. You're a holy nation. We'll actually come back to the purpose of this a little bit later. Why are we a royal priesthood? What's the point of that kind of image, that language? So you're a holy nation set apart for God's holy purposes, Right? We're his. We belong to him. 
We're a people for his own possession. I mean, just stop and think about this. You and I, if we are in Christ, we are a part of God's treasured possession. He talks about his people that way. We are his treasured possession. That's incredible mercy and incredible honor. Chosen and honored. Living stones chosen and honored, just like Jesus was the living stone chosen and honored. Look at verse 10. Incredible mercy and honor here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Which, you know, oftentimes you scratch a New Testament text, there's an Old Testament text underneath, and that's certainly the case right here. Um, This is a summary of Hosea 1 and 2. Okay, that's actually what last week's message was all about. How God, like a faithful husband, brought us back, wooed us back from our infidelity. We're like spiritual whores. Okay? Just like the story of Hosea. Okay, so back there in the book of Hosea, God's people were like a whoring, unfaithful wife with their idolatry, with their sin. They were not faithful to him. And he rejected them and said that he would have no more mercy on them, that they would be judged, and they were. But he will not ultimately give up on his people. So he promises in Hosea that he will again allure them back into relationship with himself, and he will once again make his people and have mercy on them. These rebellious people, he will make them his. So Peter's quoting that, and he's, he's saying this is true of the church the people of God. The church is chosen and precious. It's chosen and honored. It's highly valued in God's sight. So you and I, we are chosen and precious, honored in God's sight. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Right? That refers to Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Do you see the parallels there? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, but rather honored. The honor is for those who believe. Okay, so do you actually believe that? Do you believe that God has honored you with incredible mercy and also that you will be honored in the future. (laughs) I don't know if we think about this too much. We ought to think about it a lot more. In fact, sit in on Al and Alex's first Peter class, and you'll get to tease out some of these themes some more. But look back again at 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercies, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Christ from the dead to an inheritance. We are sons and daughters of this king. His inheritance is ours. It's imperishable. Nothing can kill it. Nothing can take it from us. Undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Incredible honor. 
You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time when Jesus returns. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And guess what? Some of those trials, you might, you might be shamed for following Jesus. You might be humiliated. You might be insulted. You might be dishonored in the midst of those trials. But you can still rejoice because you know that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious, worth more than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor, the same honor word, at the revelation of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're going to be honored, that the tested genuineness of your faith is going to result in praise, glory, and honor from God? Of course we're going to praise God, but this is talking about from God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be a nobody in this life. You may not be very popular, and you may pay dearly for your faith in Jesus, for following him. You may never hit 5,000 friends on Facebook, okay, or be, you know, whatever. You might never, your, your video might never hit a million views on YouTube. But you have sought to be a friend of the friendless and you've loved the least of these. Your faithful service in and for the church, you know what? Oftentimes it looks very ordinary. Oftentimes it gets overlooked. But in the end, when the only reckoning that really matters takes place, you will hear, can you, can you just, Fast forward and and actually know this is really going to happen, folks. Can you imagine the king of all the earth? Public for every eye to see, every ear to hear. When the king says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You were marginalized and shamed. People just didn't even recognize your service, but I saw it all. So, well done, good and faithful servant. The tested genuineness of your faith will result in honor. Listen to Don Whitney, what he says here. Imagine a history book written in heaven a million years after the end of the earth. How much space will it devote to the stock market? Corporate mergers, presidential elections, and sports championships. Won't it be dominated instead by actions in and through the local church, deeds that passed unnoticed at the time by people the world overlooked? The names of many mighty and noble may be mere footnotes, but the names of those who loved the Lord and ministered to his saints will fill its pages, and written in gold letters on the flyleaf may be this inscription, from Hebrews 6, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So that well done, good and faithful servant, that honor 
is the only accolade, the only approval, the only praise that ultimately matters. And so living for that is what Peter is talking about in this book when he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At least that's part of what he's pointing to. Okay, so do you believe that? (laughs) Do you think that if we really believe that, if we really got that, that we already are approved, justified, there's no condemnation we might be able to handle when people criticize us? If we really believe that future vindication and cosmic commendation, do you think that that might free us from just the slavery to, you know, fear of man and we've got to always please everybody and we compromise our integrity to do it? You see, we need to believe these things. Believe it in the church. The church should be this countercultural community because of what we believe. So what would it look like if it's worked out, that faith? Well, a lot of different things, but let me just hit two from 1 Peter. Okay, if we believe this honor and that, that Peter is getting at here. Flip ahead to 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Just two quick examples from 1 Peter 3. We could multiply examples here. One to women in general, one to husbands. Although I'll generalize it beyond that for all all of us. So 1 Peter 3, 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Nobody be self-conscious that you have a, a gold bracelet on. The point is, not don't wear any of these things. It's don't focus your beauty here, okay? Verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, women, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so if women dress in such a way to turn heads, it's because the attention of the man is very precious, at least a certain man, or maybe many men. But if you believe these things, what is precious to you is what is precious in the eyes of your God, right? So that gets fleshed out, the faith gets fleshed out here in chapter 3 like this. Or look at 1 Peter 3, 7. In other words, if, if you've been honored, you know who you are, and you're loved and chosen and honored by God, you don't have to to kind of stretch and manipulate to get the attention and the honor of, of men around you by means of how you look. Okay, the second one, 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So showing honor because they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Here's the point. How could you, if we are going to be, if our, the test of genuineness of our faith is going to result in honor from God, how could we as husbands demean and dishonor ones whom God has honored and will honor? Do you see it? Like, what right do I have to dishonor Beth if God has honored her 
as an heir of the grace of life. Okay? Paul actually broadens out this admonition in Romans 12 where he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Okay? Do you know what the term inaugurated eschatology means? <laughs> eschatology is the end. Inaugurated means it's already started. So we're going to be honored at the end? Well, it's already begun by God's grace now. So if your wife is going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if she is going to be shown a cosmically vindicated as an heir of the grace of life, enter into the joy of your master, then how dare I dishonor her and treat her like she's not this heir of grace? You guys tracking with this? As far as how the fate, okay, just making sure. Okay, so there's lots of other ways that this, this stuff gets fleshed out. Good thing to discuss in your home groups um, today or later this week. Point number three, we're God's temple. Okay, the Bible talks about us being God's temple individually, our bodies. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you don't have to turn there. Just listen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then also, the Bible talks about us being God's temple corporately. 1 Corinthians 3.16, again, don't bother turning there. I'll be past it by the time you get there. Do you, Paul says, plural, church in Corinth, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In other words, if, if someone comes in and tries to do damage to the church, the temple, God will judge him for that. Because Paul's talking about his ministry as a, a good builder, a skilled builder of the church, in contrast to those that would try to lead people astray and do damage to the church. Or the text that Neil read in 2 Corinthians 6.16. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so pretty clear. We're God's temple. Now we really need to focus on, so what? What's the significance of being the temple of God, the dwelling place of God? Um, so this is point number four. Why, why a temple? What is the temple? What's the temple for? Okay, well, just stop and think. Old Testament, what was the temple for? Well, it's the place of God's special presence, right? It's where God meets with his people, where he dwells with his people. So, fast forward to the New Testament, and you have Jesus saying this crazy thing, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the people are going, what? This temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? Okay, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why did he say that? Because Jesus is the true meeting place of God with his people. How in the world can sinful people dwell with a holy God? Well, you've got to have atonement, right? That's why the temple had the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. That's why they had the Day of Atonement, right? Well, Jesus provides the ultimate 
atonement. We don't need a temple anymore, an actual building. We don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to do those things because Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. And he made atonement and reconciled us to the Father. Okay, if we trust in his sacrifice on the cross in our place, then our sin is atoned for, it's covered, and we are reconciled to God. So the temple is more than that. It's a lot of things. It's actually the place where God exercises his rule. You know, in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord in the temple, and it's like his footstool, the train of his robe. I saw the, the king. He's actually ruling from the temple. Like I said, it's a place of atonement. It's also the place of the mediation of God's mercy because we need forgiveness. It's also the place where God is worshipped and praised and sacrifices are made. So think about the implications that we, the church, are the temple. What does that mean? What are we supposed to believe about this as far as our faith getting worked out in the context of the local church to be the church? We'll look back at verse 5. Peter starts to unpack this and make it clear. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, okay, like a a temple. Why? To be a holy priesthood. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let's take each of those. First, the holy priesthood. What's the point of being a holy priesthood? Well, doesn't it imply access to God's presence? Remember when Jesus died, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Certainly it was only the priests that could come into the Holy of Holies and only the high priest once a year into the, I'm sorry, the holy place, and the high priest only once a year into the Holy of Holies. But because of Christ and his work, that veil was rent from top to bottom, and we can approach God through Christ. We can come with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need. Okay, so think again of the mercy and the honor that's been bestowed on us in the gospel. It's an incredible privilege. Okay, do we believe this? This is who we are. It's our identity, a holy priesthood. Incredible access. We can come with confidence. It also means that we offer sacrifices, okay? We are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, okay, through Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean we sacrifice animals to atone for sin. We can't atone for sin. That wouldn't be acceptable to God, right? You know, back in Psalm 50, the Lord says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't want your... Your sacrifices. I want you to depend on me. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me by thanking me and praising me. I don't need your sacrifices in that sense. Okay, so we can't atone for sin. Jesus died to do that. His blood covers our sin and reconciles us. But we do offer sacrifices of thanksgiving for all that he's done. And this implies that all of life for us as a holy priesthood is to be worship. Okay, Paul says it this way, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of life is worship. This is just a little sliver of what we do as far as worship is concerned throughout the week. We should learn how to worship God in our work, acceptable, like working as unto him with all of our heart, with certain attitudes and not complaining and grumbling. You see, you see all of life is worship. Peter says it this way later on in 1 Peter 4. How should our sacrifices be offered through Jesus Christ? Well, he writes this in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the very words of God, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's the way you serve in an acceptable way. Let me strengthen you for it. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Or listen to the language of Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So one of the sacrifices that we offer is praise. And that's not just here when we sing together, though it is. But it's, we can praise God all the time, anytime. We ought to. Our hearts ought to overflow with praise. And then verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So doing good, sharing what we have, that is worship. That is a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. So why are we built up as a temple? To be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices. And some of those sacrifices we offer are sacrifices of praise, like it says in Hebrews 13. Peter actually unpacks that in verse 9. Look down at verse 9 now. Original text, chapter 2, verse 9. Why did God pour out all this mercy on us? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are to proclaim the excellencies of God, praise him like good, holy priests. He is excellent. Our God is so excellent. His excellence is manifold like a many-faceted diamond. So we should seek to see and just behold and delight in those various facets of the glory of God, his excellencies, his mercy and kindness and patience and grace and goodness and love and faithfulness. See them and savor them so that we can share them, proclaim them. Proclaim them to our children. Okay, like it says in Psalm 145. I love this. One generation shall commend or praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Okay? And then we should proclaim them to each other. This actually is encouraging. I mean, if you... See, we do this... I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we do this all the time with things that we, we love, that we experience. You might have done it already. 
Anybody shared a, a recipe already this morning? Anybody shared a restaurant that you visited this weekend? You know? We, we praise, we commend to others things that we love and enjoy and value. And, and why do you do that? It's out of love. I mean, good grief, you should try their, whatever the dish is. You want to bless your neighbor. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. So you want to share that, right? So that they can enjoy it. And then the next week you can talk about it together and enjoy it all the more. Oh, we went. It's great. Well, that's what we're supposed to do as we taste and see that the Lord is good. Is remind each other. Do you sometimes have like cauterized taste buds to the glory of God in the face of Christ? That's why you need the church. (laughs) I need somebody to just take me sometimes by the shirt and say, oh, he's so good. And I'm like flatline here on the ground and, and the grace of God, the mercy of God is mediated to me through this holy priest in front of me that is just shining with the excellencies, proclaiming the excellencies. I mentioned in the membership class this morning, we got to do this in our home groups. <clears throat> One of the pictures I have that I love is in, you probably heard me say this multiple times, good. Um, Jeremiah 2, sin is like exchanging the glory of God for, you know, created trinkets, just trying to slake our thirst at the, at the uh, bottom of a broken cistern. People forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So if I'm down at the bottom of the cistern, licking the rust off the bottom of the cistern, trying to slake my thirst, sin is like, it's like a mirage in a desert, you know? Oh, and then my mouth is full of sand. So I need somebody in my home group to come and say, hey, I know what it's like. I did that. Don't just say, you got to get out of the cistern. Get out of the cistern, idiot. Like, no, take your little stainless steel bottle and fill up at the fountain of living water and get down there on your hands and knees and say, oh, don't, like, this is not satisfying it. Would you please try this? You got to taste this. I tasted this this past week. It's so good. And you drink it and you say, ah, now you're worshiping. Their worship Proclaiming the excellencies, commending those excellencies to you. You drink and you're out of taste. You're out of that cistern as fast as you can. That's what we need to do for each other. So we proclaim the excellencies to one another and then certainly we proclaim the excellencies to the lost. So this role of kingdom of priests was that the nation of Israel was supposed to mediate the presence of God to the world. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. Okay, they obviously failed. The Levitical priesthood was a temporary provision until Jesus the priest came. And then he makes us a kingdom of priests and we are supposed to be the light to the world. We are supposed to mediate God's presence. Where in the world are people going to find the glory of God? Where are they going to see it? If the church is not mediating it to the world. Okay, so there is a global neighbor, you know, local and global witness dynamic to being a kingdom of priests. 
Okay? So we're God's temple, his dwelling place. It means we have a call to be holy, to be set apart for holy purposes. All of life is worship. And our hearts and mouths should be filled with the praise of our excellent God and Savior. So where does the power come to live like this? To be the church like this? Well, I've alluded to it a little bit, but look back at where this passage begins. Look at verse 2. It begins earlier than that, but look back at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. And then notice the parallels. As you come to him, Jesus, you are being built up as a spiritual house. You see the parallel? Long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation. Come to Jesus and be built up as a spiritual house. Do you see that? So the worship of the one true God, the religion of this temple, this people, is a taste bud religion. Okay, we need to taste and see that God is good and we need to taste and feed on Jesus. Come to Him. Come to Him. You can know that there's food in the fridge, but if you don't go, if you don't come to the fridge, open it, and put some in your mouth, you're not going to be fed. Right? So faith is like coming to Jesus and feeding on and savoring His mercy and His grace. Mercy is meant to make us marvel so that when we taste it, we go, yes, and then we want to share that with somebody else. So good. That's so good. That's why Peter again starts out and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's caused us to be born. It's great. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Nothing can kill it. You know, if I hope to go to that concert and I have the ticket, then once I go to the concert, all I have is the ticket. The hope's realized. Guess what? We've got a living hope. Nothing can kill it. Not even death. What a great hope. It's this VW commercial that was on TV a while ago, years and years ago. And there's <laughs> this guy that like runs. Well, first, first you see... This guy, and he like, puts his key in the door, and he tw- twists it twice, and the windows go down. Any, anybody? <laughs> awesome. No, no hand raised. Okay. So he runs, to the, runs in the house, and his wife is sitting there painting her toenails. And he's like, you got to come out here. you got to come out. And she comes to the door, and he goes like this, and the windows go down. And he looks at her like, isn't this awesome? And she's kind of like, roll her eyes, goes back. And then it says, Volkswagen, share the joy. You were wired like that, folk. Like, we're all wired like that. But does that dynamic happen with Jesus? Don't you want that dynamic to happen with Jesus? So as you come to him, as you come to him, as you come to him, we need to come to him, taste and see that the Lord is good so that we will share the joy. We will not sing of, proclaim, what we do not savor. We will not proclaim what we don't take pleasure in. So 
Maybe we just need to stop and pray that the Lord make us hungry. Put us out of taste for the stuff that we're stuffing our mouths with and make us hungry for him. Have you tasted? Are you coming? Keep coming. There's food in the fridge. This fridge is stock full. Here we go. And we can feed each other. And then we can feed a world that's just, you know, starving, looking through a garbage dump, trying to get satisfied. So read the Bible to, to eat well, not just check off a box. So last point, faith in the local church. I'm going to give Charles Spurgeon the last word and be done. He says this. Do we really believe this? What's it going to look like working itself out in our lives? Spurgeon says, I know there are some who say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as being obedient? What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would not just end with conviction over ways in which we are not giving ourselves to the church, but I pray that we would end with an inspired hunger to taste and see and grow up and be built up so that we can proclaim your excellencies and be a part of you building your church to be this bright light place of your presence where people can see who you are and be drawn to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.